I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hi, Ben. Agnes, how's it going? Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm really, really good. I've decided to be as enthusiastic as possible. I'm not sure why. Just, just, Positivity, just this is thrilled, what we need. Thrilled, utterly yeah. thrilled to be here, to be honest with you. Um, and you've returned from Prague? Yes, Prague, yet again away. Another jaunt. Um, but it was a very serious jaunt. We went to the European International Studies Association Conference. Gosh, uh, the, catchy. The IA team is a catchy title. Actually, the title, you'll love this. <laughs> Of the conference. Normally it's like change and continuity mm-hmm. in international affairs. Yeah. Or risks, risks and opportunities, opportunities. <laughs> in international affairs. Or the global state of the world. Yeah. This time it was a new hope. Back to the future of international relations. <laughs> <laughs> so much is going on there. Do you think somebody just watched some films? Yep. Yeah. I think it was amazing. You walked through the doors of the uh, the, the University of Economics in Prague mm-hmm. to the Star Wars theme tune. Seriously? No, I was joking. Okay. But that was, in my mind, that was what I was doing. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So, But anyway, it was good. Met with a lot of amazing academics with amazing work that yeah. hopefully we're going to publish sometime soon. Cool. And had a good time Excellent. in Prague, really. But how's your week been? quieter than yours but yeah we're working on the new issue which goes to press this week um so we'll be out next week which is great but you know tiring (laughs) (laughs) at this stage in the production process is it hard to be super excited slightly yes it's more about because you know what's coming out right i know you've known for months what's coming out. i've read everything at this point about three times by next week i will have read everything about 17 times dreamy but no, it's all great stuff. No, it's brilliant. And you and I went on another school trip, didn't we, on Sunday? That is true. We went to the London Podcast Festival. We did. Went to see the people, the lovely people at the London Podcast Festival. We did, yeah. Um, including Caroline Crampton. Who is wonderful. She's lovely and yeah. incredibly helpful. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to helping to promote your podcast, building an audience. She gave us loads of tips. So many tips, pro tips. She's the producer um, and co-host of the New Statesman's podcast. Seriously, yeah. Seriously, and and also the producer of every other podcast that they do. Yeah. Um, And they do a lot of podcasts. She's a big cheese It's busy stuff, yeah. Le Grand Fromage. Um, (laughs) Absolutely. Um, But we have got an exciting episode for you this week. We've been hobnobbing with the great and the good. We have the Alistair episode. The Alistair episode. Double Alistair. Dun, dun, dun. Mm-hmm. So... Explain. Well, last week... Well, this week, I spoke to Alistair Darling about 10 years on from the financial crash. For those of us who may not know. So he was Chancellor mm-hmm. um, under Brown, so in 2008. Yeah, he is actually one of the few ministers who was a minister from 1997 to 2010. Mm. One of three. Yeah. So he's gone through the whole generation of new Labour. Absolutely, in different forms. Wow, and he was talking 10 years on from the financial crisis, which obviously loomed large in the news. This um, week, recently. yeah. Well, I spoke to another Alistair, Alistair Campbell, who, of course, was Tony Blair's director of communications and now is a journalist, writer commentator on political issues and strategic communications and campaigner guru campaigner for several mental health charities so it was amazing to catch up and talk to him about his new seventh volume Mm -hmm. of his diaries yeah 
from his life in politics, which looks at the period of the Gordon Brown government from 2007 to 2010, including the financial crisis, of course, and lots in between. So one thing we should say before we go on is that we have established a pattern with these political-focused episodes mm. in that we can only feature politicians who are called Alistair. What, from now on? No, from ever. We just oh, gosh, ever yes. have. Alistair Burt. Alistair Burt, of course, who is the Conservative Foreign Office Minister for Africa and Diffid. the Middle East. Yeah, Diffid and Foreign Office. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can check out his interview in episode 11, I yeah. believe. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's it. It's just Al. So, we, so we're now going to be spending the rest of our week <laughs> researching other potential Alistairs that we might be able to I don't think we should limit it to politicians. OK, just generally Alistairs. If there are any great Alistairs out there, get in touch mm. with us. Do you want Undercurrents to shall forthwith be known as the <laughs> Alistair pod. Oh, my gosh. Incredibly um, restrictive. Yes. And not brilliant for our gender balance. Without <laughs> further ado, we should probably have a listen. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Alistair Campbell. Alistair is best known as the Director of Communications and Strategy for Prime Minister Tony Blair from 1994 to 2003, during which time he had a front row seat to many of the political events that have shaped the early 21st century. The latest volume of his renowned diaries covers the period from 2007 to 2010, casting an eye over Gordon Brown's administration, the 2008 financial crisis and its fallout, and the 2010 general election, which brought an end to the era of New Labour. Alistair, thanks very much for joining us today. My pleasure. One of the really interesting dynamics in the book is the way that it kind of tracks the slow fall of Brown and Brown's administration kind of set against this kind of emergence of David Cameron as this kind of energetic, bright young thing. Yeah. I was wondering just what it was about the Brown administration, that whether the Brown administration in the way that it worked kind of aided that rise. I mean, Cameron, he starts to be quite a, a big figure in the previous volume. But I think you're right that during this period, as we get nearer to an election, this sense develops that he is probably going to be the next Prime Minister. And I don't think that was all down to Gordon by any manner of means. I think that the fact of us having been in power for quite a long time by then, I do think, and I think this comes across in the exchanges that I record with Gordon, I, I felt that too often he was, he was setting himself as a foil to Tony as much as he was to Cameron. And I always felt that strategically that was an error. And I, and, I, and I think it's, I don't want to overstate this, but I think it's part of the trajectory that then led to Ed Miliband and has, has now led to Jeremy Corbyn and, and, and a very different Labour Party. But also Gordon did have incredible strengths. And there was, there was still, for all the weaknesses, for all the foibles, for all the anger and all the rest of it, there was a strength there that, that it was very hard just to sort of say no to, because I think the other dynamic that you'll have seen weaving in and out of the diaries is my, at times, almost desperation not to be there. And Gordon's sort of matching constant belief, and it's very hard to resist this, when a Prime Minister and a Labour Prime Minister says to you, I can't do this without you, and I'm not blowing my own trumpet in saying that, it's just what he said all the time. And I know that he was he was blowing my trumpet and he was, in a sense... But he, he felt I could give him something, and I hope I did give him something extra. You know, we stopped Cameron getting a majority, which I think most of the time we thought we wouldn't. But I think that... I remember, it was was it Cameron or Osborne, George Osborne who said that he's, a, he's an analogue politician in a digital age? And that was obviously a way of 
Cameron trying to project himself as the modern leader. But I think if you're looking, this is what I worry about modern leadership, is that Gordon was a... There's a bit in the diary you may have remembered where my, my mother... I quote my mother as saying Gordon would have been a brilliant leader in the radio age, which is the same sort of point in a way. But And she didn't mean that as an insult, by the way. She felt he had this... He believed in big things. He had this thing. He, he sort of vied with Barack Obama as the best voice for politics. He's got a great voice. We saw it again recently with the anti-Semitism speech. But he found a lot of the modern stuff about politics very difficult. And I think Gordon also, I mean, for me, the most tragic part of the book is that Gillian Duffy, um, the so-called Bigot Gate episode where, and, and, I, and I thought long and hard even about including some of that because it was so kind of personal. Gordon, what he was saying to me about himself after that. Uh, and I say he was like a wounded animal. It was horrible to watch. He felt, tot- he felt at that moment he had thrown the election away. Now, I don't think that's true. You know, we won Rochdale for a start, uh, where she came from. But I think Gordon was, was de- put it this way, David Cameron exploited the perception of Gordon very, very well and used it to his advantage. Do you think in terms of his sort of approach to political strategy that Cameron is sort of the real heir to Blair? No, I really don't. I really don't. And if I know we're here to talk about the the diaries and from the crash to defeat, but if I can plug another book, my book on winners, before the referendum, I actually said the reason I don't think Cameron ultimately is a winner is because I think he confused his strategy and tactics all the time. I think he did that in the 2010 campaign, which, frankly, he should have won. I think he did it with Ed Miliband. And OK, he beat Ed Miliband, but he beat Ed Miliband in part by promising the referendum to deal with the UKIP vote and the, and the Tory right. He never had a strategy for Europe. And then, so he wins the election, he gets his majority, he gets rid of Nick Clegg and the Lib Dems around his ankles, and where is he now? And he's shared writing his memoirs, and Britain is in complete and total chaos because of Brexit. So, no, I don't see him as the strategic heir to Blair at all. I think the Tories gave themselves a narrative that Tony Blair was a great communicator and he had these evil manipulators, Alistair Campbell and Peter Mandelson and all the rest of us, and that was why we won. When, in fact, we won because Tony was way better than them and because we did have a proper strategy for the country. Now, people can agree with it or disagree with it, but we knew what we were trying to do, modernise the country. And so I think they learnt the wrong lessons about us. I think they focused so much on the communication stuff. And actually, he missed the biggest thing about Tony, which is that he did have a strategy. Yeah, obviously you mentioned David Cameron's kind of absented himself from political discourse. But people like Tony Blair have, at times, sort of chosen to intervene. He did, uh, I think it was last week, yeah. on the on the future of the Labour Party, mm. and he did so over the summer on, on Brexit. What do you think is the kind of, what's the thinking behind those interventions? Is it just somewhat like a citizen with a personal view, or do you think that there is actually some use to these big beasts coming back and trying to influence things now? I think there's a very interesting discussion here. I think John Major's done it really well. I think Tony's found it difficult. And I'll tell you what's really interesting about this volume of diaries is actually, although I talk to Tony a lot, He's not figuring that much in the ongoing political debate. He's almost got to a position, for example, with Gordon, where if Tony wants to get something through to Gordon, he's going through me or he's going through Peter when he went back into the government because that relationship is almost, well, not almost, it's, it's effectively broken down. 
he was absolutely clear that he didn't want to be the sort of Thatcher backseat driver for Gordon. Now, I think I completely understand that, and I think it was the right reasons. However, I think it's one of the reasons why Tony now gets negativised to the extent that he does, because he vacated... Whereas Clinton, for example, another one who's left off his young, he never stopped being a politician. He never stopped strategising. He never stopped intervening in the debate in a, in a meaningful way from time to time. Tony, right for the right reasons, vacated the field. But it meant that during that period, his enemies were still going for him, particularly the media. And, of course, it mattered less. Once you're out of office, he, did, he didn't care as much about it. So let the Mail do what they do. Let the Telegraph do what they do. Let the Sun go after him. And he just let them. Added to which, the Labour Party has negativised him. Successive leaders have, have not really stood up for the Blair record, which I think stands comparison with any leader's record. You know, Northern Ireland alone, I think, puts Tony right in the A-grade leaders. But then you add in minimum wage, sure start, gay marriage, uh, you know, the, the whole kind of poverty agenda, schools and hospital rebuilding, Kosovo, Sierra Leone. North, I could go on and on and on and on, and I often do. And then all you get from the a lot of the people on the left is, what about Iraq? What about Iraq? What about Iraq? That's all you get. Yeah. It's a big but, though, right? For sure. I'm not saying it's not a big but. Um, and it's a big part of his... If his premiership, of course it is, and and it's a big part of of his legacy. And even though he and I would argue that he did what he did for the right reasons, neither of us would pretend that it's ended up where we wanted to. But equally, here we are in Chatham House that wrestles with these issues all the time. I think I talked about the Tories learning the wrong lessons about New Labour. I think you look at what's happening in Syria right now, and you wonder whether world leaders haven't learned the wrong lessons about Iraq, which is that if it's really really difficult, don't do it. Uh, because look what happened to Blair and look what happened to Bush. But let's be frank, if, if, if Obama had delivered on not allowing the red line of chemical weapons used to be to be crossed, and of course our story is involved in that as well because Cameron tried to get Parliament to support, Ed Miliband couldn't get the Labour Party to support, didn't necessarily want the Labour Party to support, and we are where we are. I'm not saying that's the only factor, but it was a big factor. And meanwhile, you've got Putin literally as he was the other day when he was talking about the two guys in Salisbury, literally trolling the UK. How would you have dealt with that, with that story? I mean, I think she did what, you know, I think you can't... I think when it first happened, I think that united international response with a bit of kind of action on sanctions was probably the right way to go. But I think Trump adds to this as a quandary as well. How do you deal with leaders who have no compunction at all. And we used to get accused of lying, right? We didn't lie. We didn't lie about Iraq, didn't lie. We just didn't. Because I think in our system, you can't. You just get found out and you get hounded out, and which is why I hope Boris Johnson is getting found out over the, the Brexit debate. But with Trump and Putin, they do it with impunity. And that's hard. That's hard for the public to deal with, but it's very hard for other leaders to deal with it. But I think with Theresa May and the, the Salisbury thing, could we have been tougher? I do think that the whole business about the, the, the amount of Russian dirty money that's swilling around London, have we really dealt with that? Is there more that could be done without really doing fundamental damage to the economy? I think there probably is. There's a line, I, can, I can't remember exactly when it is, but it's sometime late 2007, 2008, and you, you sort of speculate that Gordon Brown and Hillary Clinton might represent a kind of post-charismatic style yeah. of leadership um, that's based on earnest, serious politics. Yeah. Um, that's got I mean, well. Yeah, I was going to say, my, my <laughs> contention is maybe that's not been borne out. But I'll why you, do you think that is? 
Or why did I think that was? Why, why did why well, did I? No, why do you think it hasn't come to pass? Or, but also, why did you think it was at the time? I'll tell you why I thought it at the time. I was in. I'll tell, I know exactly when that was. It was when I was in America, promoting the Blair Years, which came out towards the end of two thousand and seven. So Gordon had just be, become prime minister. Hillary was with Obama. Uh, you know, going going for the for the for the, for the presidency. And if you remember, if you go back to the, the, the start of Gordon's premiership, and I know everybody gets a bit of a honeymoon, but actually there was a real sense that he dealt with some pretty difficult things early on very, very well. There was the there was a terrorist incident that he dealt with. There was a foot-and-mouth outbreak. He was doing some interesting big stuff on the international uh, stage. I think there was a, I think the turning point for me came with the on-off election debate. But And then you had Hillary, who was obviously being compared negatively by the media and the political class, if you like, both to Bill and to Barack Obama, to uber-charismatic, very, very kind of alpha leaders. And I just thought maybe this is just what happens, that it goes in cycles. We've had had the Blair, we've we've had Clinton, and maybe that people are yearning, wanting this kind of more grounded, remember the not Flash, just Gordon, that kind of approach. Why hasn't that delivered? I th- I'm afraid I think that maybe people are because of the... We, we do, despite having more media than ever, we seem to have less real debate. We are, I think, becoming very dumbed down about politics. Trump's election says to me that something has gone horribly wrong in our political systems. And this is why it's so difficult to deal with Trump now, because it's not as if... People elected him thinking, oh, I'm electing him because I, I don't want my president to, to lie. They know that he lies, including the people who voted for him. They don't care. So I don't know. I mean, I really, really hope at some point it, it swings back. But if you look at the Angela Merkel, I mean, I, I cite her in, in one of the previous books as, a, I think, a, an antidote to this kind of Trumpian, uber-charismatic sort of approach to leadership. But, but she's struggling more than she has been. And again, that's partly longevity, but it's also because maybe even the Germans that are starting to think, oh, maybe we need something a bit a bit different. Interesting. I just want to uh, move on up to the financial crisis, which obviously kind of looms large in 2008. And a lot of the sort of early part of the book, there is, there's this sense that the Gordon Brown administration is slightly chaotic and there are lots of mixed messages necessarily, sort of there's not much coordination going on. Do you think that, as bad as it was, the financial crisis was a kind of galvanising force for his administration? Did it? Did it? Because they actually dealt with it very competently. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that this is this goes back to the point my mother was making, mm. that when it was like really big stuff and kind of the helicopters were crashing in through the roof, and the floods were, you know, driving everybody out of the basement, Gordon could get his hands on the levers and he could use his intellect and his contacts and his force of personality to to get change when it was like we've got a problem over Damien McBride smearing a couple of Tory MPs wives or when it was a personnel issue or when it was MPs expenses for example it it was almost like it was it was chaotic so and it's interesting I'm actually doing an event this week with with Alistair Darling talking about the crash 10 years on and so I've just been rereading Alistair's book and, and and he came to very much the same conclusion that when it was the sort of day-to-day run-of-the-mill political management, Gordon was a bit all over the place. When it came to the crash, he did really, really well. And I don't think we should we should underestimate just how important he was at the international level. 
because I mean, even though Obama has this wonderful image around the world, he, he's he's Obama also had a touch of the America First about him. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't Clintonian in his kind of belief in the big global picture. He was very American focused, and and likewise Gordon with the French and with the Germans and with the big financial institutions. Tony and I used to call it Gordon's killer driller mode. When he's in killer driller mode, when he's decided something needs to be done, he just boom, he just keeps going. And when it's big stuff like that, that's when he's at his best, I think. And back to Cameron, I think one of the things the Conservatives did very well, helped, I'm afraid, by the Labour Party at times, was was kind of get Gordon blamed for it. The mess we inherited, the mess we inherited, the mess we inherited. That was all about saying Labour caused the crash. And I'm afraid we didn't push back hard enough on that. Mm -hmm. I just want to sort of completely change direction now. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit about mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, So over the weekend, Ruth Davidson kind of ruled herself out of the Conservative Party leadership bid, citing the possible impact that she thought it it could have on her mental health. Mm. I was just wondering whether you think that the psychological pressure of being a political leader is kind of properly acknowledged or understood? Uh. Yeah, well, if you get if you get Tuesday's Daily Telegraph, I find myself rarely for me. I find myself writing the Daily Telegraph because they asked me to write a piece about that very subject. And I mean, I think Ruth Davidson is a. I, I got to know her a bit during the referendum campaign, doing the debate preparations, and I liked her. I thought she had a lot, lot, lot of. Uh, she's very charismatic. She's very bright. I hope that she doesn't think that the possible impact on mental health should rule somebody out of being Prime Minister, because I don't think it should. Uh, if you think about who is most people recognise as our greatest Prime Minister, most say Churchill. Well, he famously had the black dog. In fact, he coined that phrase. Abraham Lincoln struggled all his life with depression, so did his wife. There was a Norwegian Prime Minister, Kjell Magnia Bondovic, in 1907, 98. He actually stood aside for a sabbatical because he had chronic depression, during which, by the way, his poll ratings were stratospheric. And his colleagues refused to accept his resignation. So I think it is possible. But I, in answer to your question, are we sympathetic enough? I don't think we are. That being said, I mean, again, I know I'm not an elected politician, but I'm in public life, as it were. I've got a public profile. I've always been open about my mental health struggles, and I've never, had a, I've never felt a downside to it in the public sphere. But one of the people editing the book said she cried at this bit. The, in, in this latest book, I record these conversations I had with Charles Kennedy. Charles actually, even though it was a different party, and I were very close friends. And because he knew that I'd had struggles with alcohol, we used to talk about his problem. And he knew he had a problem. But he could never quite bring himself to cross that line that said, he did go into places, he did go and try and get sorted and get cleaned up and what have you, but he could never quite bring himself to tell people that's what he was doing. So he goes through that thing where you're lying to others, you're saying, I'm just taking a few days off, or I'm... You know, I've, I've got a migraine or whatever it might be. And you force yourself. Whereas I think, actually, we all, we know this in our own lives and, and in politics. The first thing you've got to do to deal with the problem is to is to address the reality of the problem. So I think with, with Charles, I do feel, I mean, look, who knows, alcohol may have killed him anyway. We know it did kill him. He was killed by his alcoholism. Might that have been prevented had he been able to stop drinking? Might it have been easier for him to stop drinking if he had been able to admit publicly that is what he's trying to do, without that being used against him politically or by his constituents or by the media or by his opponents. And during his election campaign, I mean, some pretty horrible stuff went on. The SNP, I mean, you know, leaving bottles of whiskey in his garden and, you know, there was this whole thing on Twitter, where's Charlie today? And it was all sort of very 
nasty and personal and unpleasant. And I know it got to him. I know that. I, and I used to say to him, I used to say, Charles, look, I know this is a big risk and I know you're, it's easy for me to say this because I'm, I'm out of it now because I was out by then. I wasn't in number 10 and I was, I was building new life and I was, I was campaigning on this. I was working for alcohol concern and for mine and for rethink. But I said to him, I honestly think this could be the saving of you that you, if you just said publicly, look, I've got a problem with alcohol. I'm determined to beat it. This is how I'm going to do it. I don't believe this should be a bar to me being leader. And I'm going to carry on and sort it out. I think he, I think he could have done that. It's valid to talk about um, getting yeah mental health more sort of openly spoken about. There's a question I've been thinking about, which is that to my mind, it's there's never been a time where it's been easier to be open about yeah. your mental health difficulties. That awareness of mental health is something that's really encouraged yeah. and people speak about it very fluently in the media and just in public life. But do you think there's a danger that actual sort of tangible policy responses to mental health are kind of being pushed aside because people are sort of saying, well, we're talking about it more and more and totally, more. Totally. You know? I totally, 100% agree with you. It's almost like that's enough. Okay, I totally agree with you, it. and I have a real yeah. problem with this. In fact, I, I, I was doing something earlier today, and, and I said, if I go to one more mental health event, and somebody stands up, whether it's a bank. I've been, I've been at one where Jeremy Hunt said this, and I'm not criticising for this, but people stand up and say, it's fantastic that we're all talking about this. And I tend to get up and say, look, I'm sick to death of talking about this. Why are we still having to talk about how important this is? We don't have to talk about how important cancer is because we know we've got to deal with that. And, and, and I think we're still in the foothills on this. I, you know, we're so far away. When Theresa May became Prime Minister... She stood on the steps of number 10. She said mental health was going to be a priority. Well, it's not. She's only got one priority. It's this wretched Brexit nonsense. Priority means more important than the others. That's what it means if you look at the dictionary. And we, it's not. So I, I, I completely agree with you. I, I think that the it's almost like the talking about it is a substitute for doing what you need to do with people who are mentally ill. And let's be frank, here we are in central London. How far will we have to walk from here to see somebody sitting on the streets that we know Yes, they're begging, but we know if we sat and talked to them for a while, an awful lot of them are mentally ill, and we walk by them every single day of the week. But don't tell me it's a priority. I think there's a kind of narrative that's that's coming around at the moment that centre-left politics, kind of progressive centrism, is it doesn't really have a place anymore across Europe. You see uh, nationalist and right-wing parties gaining strength, and the left-wing parties tend to also be a kind of populist relatively hard left mm. swing do you think that the center left has a future and how would we how would we resurrect it if that was well i think first of all on this i thought it was really interesting the the, the elections in sweden and okay the sweden democrats the right wing the, the hard right party did reasonably well but they didn't do as well as they were expected to and hoped to and they didn't do well as the the kind of pre-election media narrative uh what i would call progressive mainstream parties one, likewise in France, Macron saw off Le Pen. I mean, she did far better than she ought to do in in a country like France, but he saw her off. Merkel, yes, her lead was eroded, and the AfD is a is a force in Parliament, but she won. So we shouldn't overstate it, but I agree, nor should we understate it. And I, I slightly resent this kind of use of centrist and moderate as a kind of term of abuse. I don't feel like I'm a centrist. I, don't, I, I feel like, for example, on, on Brexit at the moment, I feel as passionate about Brexit as I, as I felt about anything. I don't, I don't feel it's centrist to be saying to the Labour Party, why are you not doing more 
to oppose what I see as a hard right project. I think actually they're the ones who are not, you know, they're not extreme enough in my view on that one. And likewise, this thing about moderation, you know, uh, being moderate. Was Tony Blair moderate in bringing in a windfall tax on the excess profits of the privatised utilities? You imagine those words in John McDonnell's mouth and people would say it's hard left. A tax on the excess profits of the privatised utilities. That was our language. Now, is that moderate? Was the minimum wage moderate when the Tories said it was going to create a million, uh, add a million people to the, the dole? So I just think these terms get banded around. But in answer to your question, what's the future for kind of centre-left politics? I, I agree at the moment it's it's very difficult to, to see. I think that I feel that, and I, by the way, I think it's not just the centre-left that has problems. I think the because what we, we know what happens with this kind of right-wing ethno-nationalism. It either ends in absolute chaos and catastrophe, and history's seen plenty of that, or it ends very, very quickly in failure. I remember you, not that many years ago. In fact, it might be in this volume when, we, when the BNP started to win few council seats yeah. and people thought oh my god and you know they get into the council they fail they're useless they can't actually deliver on things and, and they get kicked out again so i don't know what, where it's going to come from but i sort of feel where i agreed with what tony said last week is i think there's a i think for see my kids now are in their uh, early 30s and mid to late 20s that generation okay jeremy corbyn does have a lot of young people that he seems to motivate has got into politics but I see an awful lot of people in that young generation who are looking both at today's Labour Party and today's Conservative Party and thinking, this is not my life. This is not what I'm about. And that's going to have to go somewhere. Now, I hope it goes to a Labour Party that gets in touch with stuff that at the moment I don't feel they address nearly enough. The desire for a you know, gen real aspiration. And also, I, I just don't feel we hear enough about what we'd actually do to deliver a better health service, better schools, better universities. It's all being reduced to this stuff about a bit more tax on the rich and we'll have more money. Well, it's got to be much, much deeper than that. The problem for our politics is, is much, much deeper than that. And I don't see how you can do any of it with Brexit happening in the way that it seems to be happening now. So how do you, how do you turn that around? Presumably, I mean, you're pretty clear you want Brexit to stop. How would you convince enough people that that's a viable democratic approach to things? I think that what we have to accept, one, that we lost the referendum, two, both sides have to accept that the country is as divided as I've ever known it and divided in all sorts of different ways, regionally, nationally, the four countries, within the four countries, race, age, sex... There's just so much kind of, you know, professions, university educated, not university educated. There's just so much sense of division and not enough things around which we feel we're uniting. And we're not uniting around this Brexit. That is absolutely clear. And I think the reason for that is that people, I think for a lot of people, I'm not, there were some people who wanted a hard Brexit and that's why they voted Leave. But I think lots of people, for lots of people I know, it was a protest vote didn't like Cameron, didn't like the political class, don't like the bankers, didn't like globalisation. A lot of them never thought it was going to actually lead in the result that it did. But now as they see the government trying to make sense of it, trying to turn it, as you have to in politics, into words that make a treaty, that make laws, 
that set up what our country is going to be for the next half a century, whatever it's going to be, then they're realising that, hmm, hold on a minute, so what, we're going to be poorer, we're going to be weaker, we've got industries that are here now that are going to leave, we've got the City of London as the world's financial centre, but that might not happen again. We've got money for the public services, we were told there's going to be more, there's actually, is there going to be less? And it's obvious, it, it sort of, it does my head in when I see people in the Conservative Party saying we've just got to get on with it, when they don't know what it is. You know, you had the extremists the other day, we're going to produce their plan, and then, mm, we can't do that because it's just full of holes and it's nonsense. So I feel, you know, I hesitate to say I feel sorry for Theresa May because I don't, because I think she's handled it incredibly badly from day one by effectively saying the 48% can suck it up. But she she was on television this week on the BBC programme with Nick Robinson on Panorama, and she tried to frame it, helped by the BBC, I have to say, as no deal versus her deal. But the People's Vote campaign is... Is a, there is a third way, dare I use that phrase. And there's a wonderful cartoon in The Times. I don't know if you saw it. It's Theresa May standing with her arms outstretched and there's two routes to the right and the left, no deal and checkers. And behind her, the route she's trying to stop is people's vote. And I think people want another say because this is not what, this is not what they're told was happening. It's not what they thought was happening. They were told it was going to be easy. Fox said these trade deals would fall out of the sky. It would be simple to negotiate our way out of it. And it isn't. It never was going to be. The whole thing was sold in a pack of lies. And meanwhile, what's the great thing that's going to help us? A free trade deal with America. Well, how's that going to go with Trump's America first and his tariffization, as he calls it? We've got two minutes left on the recorder. So do you think, briefly, the, that the current domination of the news cycle with the crises within the Labour Party... Is that just a distraction to important things? Or is it actually in itself a really fundamental thing that needs to be fixed, particularly with regards to anti-Semitism? I think it's both. And, and, I, and I'm afraid, I think, that it, it's given people concern, and me included, I have to say. You think, well, if they can't actually deal with that, if they can't resolve that over the months and months and months that it's been rumbling, either they don't want to because... There's something in the central allegation, which is horrific to consider, or they're just not very competent. Well, neither of those are very happy conclusions. But what it's meant is that while you've got the country facing its biggest challenge since the war, while you've got, as we say, people living on the streets, while you've got the health service in crisis pretty much around the year now, never mind just winter crisis, while you've got problems in universities, problems in schools, problems with crime, absolute crisis in our prisons, all of these issues barely being discussed, debated, policies being brought forward because both the main parties are consumed with Brexit and Labour has had this anti-Semitism row pushing everything else off the agenda. Well, we see how it bears out. But Alistair Campbell, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Alistair Campbell just there. Uh, you can buy his book, From Crash to Defeat, 2007 to 2010, in all good bookshops. It's published by Bite Back Publishing, so give it a read. Before we listen to the next interview, I just wanted to interrupt to say, if you are enjoying what you're hearing, please tell a friend or rate or subscribe to us on iTunes. So 
I'm here with Alistair Darling, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer between 2007 and 2010. And we're here to discuss a decade on from the financial crisis. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So, I suppose the thing that I've never really understood is how did the financial crisis happen? Where did it, how, how much notice did you have? And yeah, how did these things occur on a global scale? The basic problem was that banks in the UK, in America, Europe, right across the world, had taken on risks, either lending money to people who turned out not to be creditworthy, or buying what looked like sophisticated financial instruments mm -hmm. uh, that were really quite complex, so complex that many bank boards didn't understand what on earth they were. And all this was very well until suddenly, in uh, the end of 2007, beginning of 2008, suddenly markets, banks began to realise that actually all this stuff was worthless. And if you come to believe that a bank isn't holding valuable assets, but it's holding stuff that is absolutely worthless, yeah. what do you do? You try and get your money out. And what happened, and it came to a crunch in October of 2008, was that People lost confidence in banks, and it culminated in the beginning of October in 2008 when there was a massive run on RBS, which is NatWest in uh, most of England and Wales, with people demanding that they get their money out. Mm. And of course, banks don't have that much ready cash, and certainly not in those days they didn't. And the most extraordinary thing was that I remember vividly a call from the then chairman of RBS when I was at one of these uh, interminably boring finance ministers' meetings in Luxembourg. And he said that the bank was hemorrhaging money. This bank was the biggest bank in the world, mm. about the size of the UK economy. And he said, what are you going to do about it? And Because he knew we were working on a plan. And I said, well, look, we've got a plan. How long can you last? Now, it's what he said that sent a shiver down my spine. He paused and he said, well, we're going to run out of money in the afternoon. Now, when you think about it, if a bank runs out of money, it switches off its cash machines, it switches, it's, the front door is shut. Mm. But worse than that, anybody who'd got money in any bank anywhere in Britain, and then America, then Europe, would have said, hold on, if the biggest bank in the world can collapse, my bank can collapse. Yeah. And when you think about it, especially 10 years ago, when there's much more cash around, if you didn't have cash, actually your card didn't work because the machinery had been switched off, mm. you can't feed your children, you can't buy petrol for your car, you can't maybe get the, the fare home. So it would have resulted in not just a complete breakdown of the financial system with all the consequences, but on a personal level, mm. it would have resulted in people panicking which is what had happened 12 months ago when a small uh, bank, Northern Rock, based in the north of England, there had been huge queues because of panic over its solvency and so on. So, in essence, it was banks didn't understand the risk to which, had, to which they had become exposed. Mm. When it came, they had no buffer to fall back on and they had no ready cash. Mm -hmm. And in those circumstances, there is only one institution in any country in the world that can stand behind them, and that's the government, yeah. which we did, the Americans did, the uh, European Central Bank did. And we'd not seen anything like it in modern times. Mm. Uh, but it's a salutary lesson to what can happen when people assume it's all too good to be true. Yeah, sometimes it is, isn't it? Um, and would you, looking back now, was there anything that you would do differently? 
in a sort of immediate reaction to this? Well, it, obviously, if you could wind the clock back 20 years, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. But how did you, we react to it? I think in relation to Northern Rock, uh, which you know, people may remember the pictures of people queuing around the blocks and waiting to get their money out, even though they thought they'd been told the money was guaranteed. They were seeing it on the television and everybody's queuing up, so they thought, well, I'll do that then. And there wasn't really internet. Certainly Northern Rock didn't have much in the way of internet banking, but they were losing money there as well. But at that time, the government did not have the legal power to simply take hold of a bank and say, you are insolvent, we will decide over the weekend what's going to happen to you, probably a takeover by another bank or whatever. Uh, now, because 10 years ago, the idea of nationalising a bank was seen as being, you know, like going back to Bolshevik Russia or something like that, it was, it was ridiculous because when we actually did nationalise it in February, um, people said, breathed a huge sigh of relief that it was all over. But if we, we should have taken these powers much more quickly, I think, and we could have resolved that one more quickly. In relation to the big bank rescue of 10 years ago in October 2008, no, in retrospect, I don't think what, there's anything, you can argue about the technicalities of how we did it, but you know, if we hadn't done it, we were within three hours of the entire system crashing down. Uh, and you know, people have asked me lots of times since, why didn't you just let it collapse? Because that would have taught them a lesson, wouldn't it? Well, actually, the guys who caused it would have walked away the people who would have suffered are people on low incomes, people with small savings, who would have been shut out from their money if indeed they could ever get it back. Yeah. So I don't think there's anything we could have done. Uh, there's a bigger argument, I think, about when people say, well, look at things today, that was largely caused by the economic fallout of all this rather than the rescue itself. And, you know, there's a separate argument, really, about the whole question of austerity and how governments reacted to, you know, the fact that they were borrowing more and debt was rising. Yeah, I mean, that's a very political element, too, about how the Conservative government and coalition used that to push a different agenda. Well, it, it's all politics, as they say. Yeah, of course it's all <laughs> politics, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, ten years on, do you think... I mean, Gordon Brown obviously came out with that the statement yesterday about the danger of sleepwalking into a future crisis. But do you think that the international global... Like financial system has learnt from 10 years ago? Do you think it's developed? Do you think this well, could happen again, or if it did, it would be different? I think there are two things here. One is the next crisis will almost certainly be different. If we knew where it was coming from, then we wouldn't happen, obviously, but you, you don't. It's more likely, I think, to be from a cyber attack, a coordinated cyber attack, than from banks buying you know, silly bits of paper that turn out to be worthless. Although the thing you've got to watch is the day the last person who was around in 2008 leaves the office, you lose the institutional, the memory uh, of what happened, and that's always a dangerous time. But I think the bigger point, you know, the one that you know, Gordon Brown was making, was that when we did what we did in 2008, one of the reasons it worked is because it wasn't just us. The Americans... A bit later on, the uh, Europeans through the ECB, they all did the same thing. All the big central banks in the world, you know, the, whether, whether it was the US Fed, the Bank of England, Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank, they all put money in, you know, to lowered interest rates at the same time. Governments put money into the economy. They, rest, they coordinated the rescue. And I, my guess is that if it hadn't been done and like, people could see that there was, the world was acting together, it wouldn't 
wouldn't have worked. When you think about it, you had at that time a Republican president, George W. Bush in America, and you had the the head of the Chinese Communist Party in China. They were all doing the same thing because they knew they had to, otherwise they were facing a calamity and their populations were facing a calamity. Now, were anything to happen again on this scale, I cannot see how any country any one country, even big economies like America or China, could ever do this on their own for the simple reason that the financial system is, it is totally connected. Uh, you know, we have you know, geographical boundaries, we have political boundaries, physical boundaries, and all the rest of it. But the financial system, which is one of the lessons that people were a bit slow to learn at the beginning of the crisis 10 years ago, is totally connected. Mm. You can't break it up. So. Were you to get a global crisis, you have to have a global solution. And I think the question that Gordon Brown was quite legitimately saying is that, well, if you look at the world today in um, 2018, would there be the same readiness to cooperate? And that's a very legitimate question to ask. But I'm very clear that you know countries would have no choice. So you think they would? What well, I think they would have to. I suppose what you wonder is, 10 years ago, when RBS came with an hours of collapse, we needed to keep RBS trading until the end of the American trading day. Right, yeah. So the Bank of England kept it afloat mm-hmm. during the UK day. They arranged with the US Fed, who had never any, at any time said, who's going to pay for all this? Or, you know, if we're putting this money in, are we ever going to get back, back off you? Because they totally trusted each other. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't just because the central banks get on with each other, because they knew politically the UK and the American government, there may have been different political colours, if you like, but they were at one that's what they were doing. Now, you know, you, you wonder today, would that happen so quickly? Mm. Um, you know, because it does need countries like America and China would have to immediately say, yeah, we're all going to do the same thing. And, you know, I think it makes a broader point that, you know, no matter what the differences the arguments today are. Mm. The fact is, in the 21st century, we live in a global world where, you know, what what, what happens uh, in the next town to us or the next city is important, but so too is what's happening in towns and cities throughout the rest of the world. True. So, I mean, I suppose if there wasn't that, uh, obviously this is water battery, but if there wasn't that sort of immediate joined-up solution, but in the end, ultimately, they had to do that, it would just be that people would fall into the gap in the middle. I think if you want an example of, I would say, how not to do it, mm. for ten year, almost 10 years now, the European Union has been trying to resolve the situation in relation to the Greek government's debt. Yeah. Now, you can argue that the reason that it became indebted was because it bought lots of goods from Germany and the German business was very happy to sell them. And equally, you can argue that the successive Greek governments never got to grips with people paying tax and so on. That those arguments aren't important for this point, but it, you, 10 years after the crisis started, it's not resolved. Mm. And of course, the longer it goes on, though, and it's, it's the poor, ordinary Greek man and woman in the street that is paying the price for this, yeah. the longer it goes on, the greater the damage. Now, Greece is a comparator in, in world terms. Greece is a very small economy, but it matters to people living in Greece you know, to, to this day. But if you had a, you know, a big economy like the US, which is by far the biggest economy in the world, or our economy, which is about the fifth or sixth biggest economy in the world, if their system is fractured, then the, you know, it's very obvious the, more, the longer you leave anything, rather like a, if, you, if you've got a bad wound, the longer you, you muck about discussing it uh, rather than fixing it, the more the harm is. And do you think 
over the last 10 years that America has dealt with the crash in a different way to Britain? Well, slightly. In terms of the bank rescue, mm -hmm. uh, what they did was, was started off on a slightly different tack. You know, they basically were buying bad assets of the bank, but they ended up doing much the same as uh, we did. Obviously, they've got bigger banks and they've got more banks, yeah. uh, but it, it was a similar sort of thing. Ten years ago, they started off with the economic recovery in the same way, uh, in that you know when government when the economy suddenly slows down, it, you know it, you know what you do is you tend to use public spending to to make sure you don't a recession doesn't become a depression, uh, so you put money into the economy. Then of course you've got to get it back out. Now the Obama administration and we did exactly the same thing. Our economy did start to grow in two thousand and nine, but in the UK, uh, when the government changed and the coalition government was elected in two thousand and ten they embarked on a much more severe attempt to try and get borrowing down, which, you know, I thought was, you know, very, very optimistic. And, of course, it, they ended up doing less than we said we would do. But the, the fallout, the, American, the Americans carried on right up until, actually, you know, a couple of years ago. So the American economy has been growing for almost 10 years now. Mm -hmm. Our economy stuttered you know, about five or six years ago. And, of course, you've got the overlay of Brexit here, which, of course, the Americans don't have. Uh, but that perhaps is for another day. <laughs> Potentially. Um, and, you know, post-2008, I think there was a lot of anger amongst the general population against the bankers, whoever they were, and whatever that actually meant. And this idea that people who potentially had caused this or been part of this crash had not suffered any consequences. Do you think that's true, or do you think that could have been dealt with differently? Well, I think it's certainly the public perception, and it has got a lot of truth in it, because actually very few people, very, very few, uh, were you know, even disqualified from practising yeah. as a banker. Now, the law's been changed a number of times since then, in that if you are running a bank, you can be held accountable if what you do is reckless, for example, or irresponsible. And, you know, you, there's, there's therefore something can be done about it. Right, sorry, can sure. I just quickly ask on that? Does that also apply to large companies? Like you know, the Philip Green. No, it doesn't. No, it, this is this is it, it's it's part of the regulatory regime okay. that you can't be a chief executive of a bank or a director. You know, without one of the problems was it appeared that a lot of people had no qualifications to do the job they were doing, which you might think is odd, but that's the way it was. Where you get into difficulty, you know, you, you get this bankers must go to jail thing. To go to jail, you have to be guilty of a criminal offence. Mm -hmm. Now. So suppose you lend money uh, to a customer and it's a very good prospect, but it turns out in the event that it was a very bad prospect and you magnify that over and over again so the bank basically loses so much money it goes bust. Is that a crime? Mm. Uh, because the best, if you say it is, the risk is you then get a bank manager saying, well, I'm not lending any money because, you know, if I lend it and it goes wrong and I'm going to jail, I'm not having that. Mm. I think we're and this is a more difficult area, is where you say someone has did something so reckless, they must have known that it would happen. But proving that, mm. especially if everybody else was doing it, you know, it, it, it's more difficult. I think the, the better way to deal with this is through the regulatory regime where there are slightly different standards in terms of you know, establishing things. Clearly, you must keep the criminal law for things like fraud or, you know, say, excessive behaviour. But what you can't do is retrospectively 
you know, say you're guilty of something that wasn't a crime when you did it, mm. and that's just, you know, that, you know, if you do that, you go down the way of some totalitarian regimes where it basically disposes of their opponents. They say they've been guilty of a crime which wasn't a crime at the time. So, but, but I think the people's perception and the fact that it actually, who, when you say who lost out in all this, for the most part, the guys at the top didn't, whereas an awful lot of people not just in the UK and elsewhere, in terms of seeing the living standards squeezed, have paid a heavy price for you know, the, the, the recession that followed all this. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask then about rising inequality and how that has sort of probably fed into this idea of hating that top level of people. Yeah, I think uh, you know, inequality does matter. You know, apart from the fact it's not fair and it's not right, I mean, not everybody's going to be the same, obviously, and some people will earn more money than other people. But, it, you know, have, if you've got a country where you've got a vast disparity between the very rich and the very poor, I mean, I just, just don't think that makes for a good society. It's also actually economically very bad, because if you've got lots of people who can't afford to go out and buy goods and services, then people can't, you know, won't be able to make them and so on. So, yes, it, it, it does matter. I think there's another problem that's, you know... A much bigger problem, if you like, that, that, that's coming on the back of this. We have an aging population who are actually better off than any of their similar age group than before. There were the baby boom generation who, who've got a lot of them have got works pensions, you know, in a final salary scheme pensions and so on. Uh, the state pension's been going up and up and up for them. At the other end... And assets. And, and, you know, the tent of houses that are worth quite a lot. In some cases, they didn't pay that much for them. And they've just gone up. At the other end, you've got their children and grandchildren who are the first generation to be poorer than the generation before them. And the thing is, when you realise that the state pension, for example, is paid for by taxes imposed on people currently working. You've got a rising generation who will have, in England and Wales, uh, student loans. They, if they're going to try and get in the housing ladder in many parts of Britain, not just the southeast of England problem, are going to have to find an awful lot of money which most people just don't have um, and you know, are probably paying higher rents than they would if they'd had mortgages and so on. And they're paying taxes to pay for granny and grandpa's pension. You can see the stresses and strains there because when they reach middle age, they will also have to support their children, who, as things stand, could also be poorer. Now, these problems are not acts of nature. They're not things that you know that someone's decreed it must be so. It does not have to be so, but it does mean that, for example, my generation have to face up to the fact that perhaps we do need to contribute more for because we're going to the health service. We tend to use the health service more when we're older. And certainly, if we need any care, or especially if you go into a home or anything like that, uh, the question is who pays for all that? Because, you know, I think you, you can't leave, you know, a rising generation and say, well, we, you know, here's a problem, you sort it all out. So I think the question of inequality and the quality, uh, you know, the, you know, it's often called in the jargon inter intergenerational fairness, but fairness between the older people, younger people, it's a problem, you know, all over the place. But it's something that does need to be sorted. But take it from me, whenever any political party tries to sort it, they discover how difficult it is. Look at, you know, Theresa May in 2017. Astonishingly brave move it, well, as it's well. Courageous, you may say, Sorry, to, to, do, to announce it in the middle of a general election campaign, yes. to basically say to your core vote, you're going to pay more. It was breaking new ground and, of course, she lost a majority. Yeah, absolutely. But I think also this idea of wealth being in Britain, especially so tied up in property, 
um, you know, what, what impact does that have on this sort of financial system? There's two problems. Firstly, it's, it's not good for the country that all money is going in, a lot of money is going into houses rather than investing it in companies that make things and so on. And of course, the other thing is that for the point of view of somebody living in this house, what are they supposed to do? Because it's not as, you know, in a perfect market, you might say you get a bigger house as you get children, and when the children leave home, you slide back down to a smaller house, uh, except there aren't, there aren't lots of smaller houses around. And yeah, this is, it's, again, it's a historic question that really since the 1970s, there's never been a housing policy. Successive governments haven't had a housing policy. Post-war, successive Labour ministers and Tory ministers would stand up and say, I have built so many hundred thousand council houses this year. When Margaret Thatcher came along, Council houses got a bad name, but <clears throat> obviously post-war people bought the argument that after all the destruction they had to build houses. But we are in that situation today, and but you know if you look at the struggle that there is to build houses wherever, because people say yeah yeah we need more houses but not my uh, town or wherever. Unless we do that, then we, this problem will just go on and on and on. What do you think about building on the green belt? I'm, I'm a very great defender of the, the Green Belt. Um, however, you know, I think you have to be open to the argument that you, if you can build on some, provided you replace it with other Green Belt. I think most people would say, well, you know, that, that's fair, as long as you, lo- you don't lose the totality of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, too often it's really an excuse for not doing anything at all. Exactly. And Lots of it are car parks. Well, yes. But it's not all lovely green fields, Yes, and you know. you know, I think most of us think of green belt as being, you know, sort of like rather like these pictures you see in art galleries, the sheep and shepherds and mm. the countryside Italy, which it, it isn't always. And you know, of course, we must build on brownfield and the rest of it, and you know, there's lots of that around. But the the real problem is that, you know, we've been talking about this item over 20 years now, you know, but all the time, you've got the younger generation who each year they get older and each year they don't have a house. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your time. I've got one last question for you, if that's okay. I feel like the Conservative, under under Cameron, they very, and Osborne, they very, very effectively claimed that Labour couldn't be trusted with the economy because of the 2008 crash, which was a global event. Do you... Do you think there is any fairness in that? Do you think that, that, that Labour can come back from that? Oh, yes. It, it, as a piece of uh, political theatre, yeah. they were very successful in saying this was all caused by the last government's handling of the economy. Uh, but, you know, the, the obvious answer is that our deficit wasn't caused by, you know, Americans doing this, that, and the next thing. It happened right across the world. And it, what was interesting was they supported our economic policy right up until the beginning of this crash, they really opposed an awful lot of the stuff that we did at the time. Uh, but it was very successful. Mm. Now, the answer is, can a political party come back? Yes, it can, but it has to come back with credible policies. If you look, turn the clock back, one of the reasons that Labour won a landslide victory in 1997, 20 years ago, uh, was partly because the Tories had run no course, but partly also people believed that we had an economic policy that would not disadvantage them, and actually the mood at that time was we, we do need to spend more on the NHS, we do need to spend more on schools and stuff. Uh, but the only way you can you know, convince people is if they, don't, if they believe that if they elect you, they won't personally find that they're worse off. Yeah. So it is entirely possible because there's been lots of times in my political life when commentators write off one political party or another and say they'll never come back and guess what they do. But you do have to have a credible economic policy, one that people say, yeah, that makes sense. If you don't have that, 
uh, then you may have all sorts of other wonderful things you're going to do, but you don't get past first base. And do you think Labour currently has a credible economic policy? We're, what, three years away from the election? And, you know, I think it would be probably fair to say there's some some things are coming along, other things are more work needs to be attended to. But... It's not just on economics. People judge a party. They judge on what they're doing generally. How do they come across? And I suppose the ultimate test, uh, you know, to always be struck by this, is most people get their news still off the television. Or Radio 2, you think. Or, or Radio 2. Most but listen to news it, it, it is, but people listen to people, and crucially, they look at them and say, would I want that person walking through the door of town Downing Street? Yeah. And that's a rather basic test you've got to pass, and if you can't pass that, then no matter what's going on today, as politics becomes more polarised, and, yeah, of course, people can point to the fact that, you know, others have completely defied the laws of political gravity. I still think, at the end of the day, people want to be able to trust the people they elect, even though they think once they get in they won't do what they want and so on. But if you get that trust, you're in with a shout. And that's all for this episode of Undercurrents. Uh, Thanks very much for listening. If you liked what you'd heard, as Agnes mentioned earlier, please leave us a review or rate us on iTunes or whatever podcast app you listen to your podcasts on. Or tell a friend. Or indeed, tell a friend. I know you have friends. We've all got, we've all got one or two. If unlike me, you have several friends. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell them. <laughs> yeah. So we've got some exciting interviews coming up in the next couple of weeks. I will be speaking to Sarah Churchwell, who is the author of a new book about America and generally a fascinating person. Mm. And you've got a great interview lined up. Yeah, with uh, Christoph Titeker, who is a, an academic from Antwerp in Belgium, and we're talking about the ivory trade in Uganda. In the meantime... I'm Ben Horton. I'm Magnus Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents. <laughs>